In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from the book of Psalms, Psalm 25. The, the author of this psalm is David the prophet. As the title of this psalm mentions, it is a psalm of David. This psalm is the first of nine alphabetic psalms. What do I mean by alphabetic psalms? Alphabetic psalms are those in which each verse or each clause begins sequentially with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But Psalm 25 is not completely or perfectly alphabetic psalm. There are some irregularities in the acrostic pattern. The acrostic pattern, when they start each verse with a letter in a sequential way, uh, they used it actually to encourage people to learn and memorize the psalm. So when you know verse 1 start with A, verse to start with B, verse 3, start with C, it will be easy to memorize it. Also, this psalm starts and ends with a prayer. This psalm is a wonderful display of the heart of a believer in the time of crisis. This evidently David composed this psalm in his later days. Why? Because he mentions the sins of his youth, which means he composed it later days in his life. It is full of mournful appeals to God to help him and reflect that tendency to trust entirely to divine mercy. So, here, actually, you can see how David totally, perfectly entrusted the divine mercies of God. Also, it is easy to apply several passages of this psalm to ourselves. So we pray as if this reflects our own prayer. Because we often have conflict and we always sin, of which we complain at the throne of grace. So we come to the throne of grace and we complain to the Lord that he may help us to overcome our weaknesses. This son is the mark of a true believer that his sorrow remind him of his sins. That his sorrow remind him of his sins. And the sorrow of sin drives him to God. Again, his sorrow remind him of his sins. That's why this will drive him to God. St. Augustine, in his commentary on the book of Psalms, he wants to refer all the Psalms to the Lord Jesus Christ, as if Christ is speaking. So here St. Augustine said, Christ speaks but in the person of the church, because he is the head of the church. So as if the church is speaking through Christ. For what is said in this psalm 
has reference rather to the Christian people turned to God. St. Jerome said Psalm 25 contains the prayer of the mediator, Jesus Christ, offered to the Father. It may also be the clamor of the church making her requests to God. The outline of the psalm, verse 1 and 2, David casts his trust upon God. Verses 3 and 5 to 5, a plea to God who helps. Verse 6 and 7, a plea for God to remember and also to not remember. He said, remember things and forget things. From 8 to 14, declaring the goodness of God. 15 to 21, eyes toward God for help. And the last verse, a closing request. I will read the whole psalm, and then actually we will take it verse by verse. This psalm will pray it in the first hour of the Agbay. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from of, of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble, he guides in justice. And the humble, he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed 
for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Alleluia. So let's start from verse 1. Verse 1 and 2. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. In the first verse, David directs his prayers to God with hope of a gracious answer. He defines prayer as lifting his soul together with his hands up to the Lord. For he who lifts up his hands and eyes, not his heart, will hear the rebuke of the Lord to the children of Israel. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. John of Damascus says, a prayer is lifting the heart to God. Prayer is lifting the heart to God. Not the lips, not, not only the lips or the hands or the eyes. Then he said, oh my God, I trust in you. This is the first thought, a feeling David had. He had true confidence in God, and his dependence was on God alone. Oh my God, I trust in you. He expresses his faith and confidence in God in the midst of all his troubles. Sometimes when we are in trouble, we say, where are you, God? But David is the opposite. In the midst of the troubles, he actually confessed his confidence in God alone. Then he asked God, let me not be ashamed. He offered up a prayer which is taken from the ordinary doctrine of scripture. There is a verse in the scripture says, they who trust in the Lord shall never be ashamed. So David said, your scripture says, those who trust in the Lord shall never be ashamed. I trust in you, then let me not be ashamed. So he is pleading to God to have mercy upon him. So his enemies might not have the opportunity to rejoice at his defeat, to overcome him or to defeat him, or triumph over him. Verse 3. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. So now, from verse 3, he starts to generalize the prayer to all who wait on God. So it passes from particular to general. So what David desired for himself, not to be ashamed, now he desires also for all the true servants of God. All who wait on God, wait on God. all who look to God, 
and seeing, seeking a sign of his wealth, let all these not be ashamed. He wanted all of them to be vindicated publicly and unashamed. And the word ashamed here doesn't mean only embarrassment, though it's sometimes actually it's used in this sense. But ashamed here means being disappointed or let down. As we read in Romans 5, 5, now hope does not disappoint. So let us not be disappointed. Also in Isaiah 49, 23, then you will know, God is speaking here, God is saying, then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Then David said in in the same verse, let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Then he is saying, let shame be the portion, not of your servants, but of your adversaries, those who transgress, those who rebel without any just reason. Those sinners, not the repentant sinner, but those sinners who have no acceptable reason for going astray and sinning. They benefit no one, not even themselves by their sins. Actually, they hurt themselves and hurt others. Such persons deserve to be brought to shame. And he described them who deal treacherously without cause. Saint Augustine said, those are who vainly toil to acquire those earthly riches which makes themselves wings, the riches of the earth like wings and take the person fly away from God, drift away from God. Then verse 4, he says, Show me your way, O Lord. Teach me your path. So here David wants to know God's will to do it. We are imperfect in spiritual understanding. We are morally blind and ignorant unless we are enlightened from on high. We cannot discern correctly the way of godliness. We don't know at any given moment what God wants from us to do. And David used two ways, sorry, two words, ways and path, and another two words, show and teach. So what is the difference? Ways are different from path. Ways are God's law. They are general to all men. But paths are straighter and narrower than ways. There is intense direction, like path of poverty, path of chastity, path of obedience. 
And the Lord said about this, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Also, there is difference between show and teach. I can show you. So, David is saying, once you show me your ways, I will think that the ways are easy. Because these are general terms, general and broad terms. But paths that are stricter must be taught with difficulty and perseverance. That's why he said, show me your ways, teach me your path. As if David is saying, show me the way to take, then teach me how to walk on it. Show me the way to take, then teach me how to walk in it. St. Augustine said, Make your ways, O Lord, known to me, and teach me your path. Not those which are broad and lead the many to destruction. The broad way leads to destruction. But I want to learn your path, narrow, and known to few. These teach me. St. Augustine also said, Show me because I cannot show myself. Teach me, for without you I can never learn. Your ways, mainly you, because you are the way. Even Solomon said about God, about the word of God, the beginning of God's ways. Show me your ways according as it is written, the Lord directs the steps and teach me your path. According to that saying, Master, we know that you are true and teaches the way of God in truth. Verse 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. On you, I will wait all the day. David first confessed his faith, his confidence in God. Then he told him, teach me your way. So faith comes first, then understanding. We first believe and have faith. Then God guides us to understand. Even in parenting, they say, while your son or daughter are children, teach them the good habits, how to excel in them. And when they grow, teach them why they are doing this. So teach your son, for example, to pray, to read the Bible. And when he reaches age 10 or 9 or 8, you start explaining to them why we do these things. In the same way that, that your son or daughter, because they believe in you, when you teach them in younger age, they will follow you. Then later on to explain. The same with God. Believe in him, then he will 
explain. St. Clement of Alexandria says, someone may say that the Greek have discovered philosophy through their human understanding. But for us, as the Holy Scripture says, that understanding is from God. The psalmist cries out in Psalm 119, verse 125, I am your servant, give me understanding. Then David said to God, For you are the God of my salvation. You are the one who saved me before, and from whom alone I'm expecting salvation and deliverance right now. On you, I will wait all the day. On you, I will wait all the day. Meaning, continuously, always, I will wait on you. David was really dependent on God at all times, and he felt that dependence. Verse 6, Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. David had many experiences before God. These past mercies are good foundation for expectation of future blessing. When you are in trouble, think about what God had done for you before. This would be good foundation to build upon. Because God's character cannot change. His action as one time will always be consistent with his action at another. As God dealt with you previously with his mercies and compassion, he will continually deal with you with compassion and mercies. So David is asking God to remember. Consider your own merciful nature, your former many and multiple acts of kindness toward me, and also to other miserable sinners. The Bible describes God as he is rich and abundant in mercy, plentiful in goodness. His love is exceedingly great, and many and abundant are the ways and methods in which the love of God is declared to us. Actually, the way David addressed God in this verse is another proof of his mercy. How come? God allowed himself to be asked to call to remembers as if he, God, the omniscient, actually ever could forget. When David tell him, remember, assuming as if God forgets, God never forgets. So by God allowing David to tell him, remember, this shows actually the mercies and the kindness of God. He did not get angry. He did not say to David, don't you know with whom you are speaking? I am God. I never forget. God did not react in this way. 
And immediately after David asked God to remember his mercies, then in verse seven, David asked God to forget. What he wanted God to forget, his youthful sins, the sins of the youth. Forget means forgive them. He wanted God to remember his own faithfulness in prior times, but to forget his sins. Then one of the beautiful verses he said in verse 7, according to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake. These are strong, strong expressions of David's humility and repentance. He asked God to be remembered not on the merits of, not on the basis of his merits, but on the basis of the mercies of God. He did not say, remember how I served you faithfully. Remember how I prayed to you. Remember how I was uh, kind to the poor and compassionate to the needy. So based on this, I'm asking you to have mercy. No. David did not say this. David, he told him, remember me for your goodness sake, according to your mercy. He wanted God to do all this, remembering and forgetting for the sake of God's own goodness, not for David's goodness. And this psalm is a pattern for all prayer. David calls on the mercies of God to have mercy, sympathy for him. And he, he exposes his own infirmity that it may be helped. I need your help. Help me according to your goodness, according to your mercies. St. Augustine said on verse 7, the offenses of my presumptuous boldness and of my ignorance, reserve not for vengeance. As if he is saying, the iniquities that I have committed willingly and not willingly, knowingly and unknowingly, forget them. Let them be as if forgotten by you. According to your mercy, be mindful of me, O God. Be mindful indeed of me not according to the anger of which I am worthy, but according to your mercy, which is worthy of you. For your goodness, O Lord, not for my deserving. For your goodness, O Lord, as we say in the Divine Liturgy, according to your mercy, O Lord, and not according to our sins. Then from verse 8 to 14, declaring the goodness of God. Verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. David turns from prayer to reflection and meditates on the character and ways of God. So he said, God is indeed good. And he has implied in preceding verse, God is kind, tender, gentle, merciful, upright. Yes, he is just, straight, and unwavering. Justice and mercy are balanced here. 
St. Augustine said, The Lord is gracious, since even sinners and the ungodly, he so pitied, as to forgive all that is past. For the Lord is upright too, who after the mercy of vocation and pardon, which is of grace without merit, will require merits meets for the last judgment. Let me explain what St. Augustine said. He said God is merciful and also he is just. His mercy appeared that God pardoned us all our sins. When we are baptized, all our sins are forgiven. And this is based on his grace, not on our merits. But then God will require merits meet for the last judgment. That's why he said in Matthew 25, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And verse 8 teaches us how God deals with sinners. God does not abandon sinner. This is his goodness. But he will redeem them, chasten them, make them to walk in his way. This is his uprightness. God teaches sinners in the way. He came not to call righteous but sinners. He is good and upright. This goodness is actually for the benefit of the sinners, not for their destruction. The Son of Man did not come to destroy the world, but to save the world. This time is time of salvation. But unfortunately, not every sinner receives these good things from God. Only those who humble themselves before God will receive this goodness. That's why in verse 9 he said, The humble he, God, guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. Those who are arrogant, like the scribes and Pharisees, they couldn't benefit from the goodness of God because of their arrogance. The humble knows that he needs guidance and is willing to submit his own understanding to the divine will. Therefore, the Lord also humbles himself to guide the sinner. In all the dealings of God, he proves his loving purpose and his faithfulness to his promises. If God promised something, he is faithful to this promise. But this faithfulness are those who those are faithful to him and keep his covenant. That's why in verse 10, he said, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. Mercy like grace, truth, justice. But to whom? To such as keep his covenant and his testimony. To those who are faithful to the covenant. In the day of our baptism, we enter into a covenant with God. And 
we renounce Satan and we confess Christ to be our God. So, in order actually to receive his mercy and his truth, we need to stay in the covenant of God, to stay in his word, to obey, to know his word and to obey his word. Then the promise of God to those who continually abide in his covenant, he will reveal his mercy and truth to them. And they will experience the mercy and the truth of God. Mercy and truth will meet together in, in the life of these people. Uh, Even when they sin, God will forgive them because he is merciful. But also God paid the penalty on the cross for his truth. So David saying we need to submit to the Lord guidance and humbleness and to be faithful to his covenant. Verse 11 for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Again, in verse, uh, verse 11, we see a strong expression of David's humility. He asking God to pardon him for his sake, for the sake of his glory, not for the merits of David. He humbly recognized the greatness of his own iniquity. He said, my iniquity is great. Yes, the way of repentance is narrow, but it is secure. By the repentance, we return to God our Father and we will enjoy his loving kindness. David would not be able to confess his sins and transgressions unless he is so confident that God is compassionate with him. Uh, so, based on the mercies of God, the everlasting mercies of God and his loving kindness, David was able to confess his sins and to say, my iniquities are great. In, in another way or other words, God's love and his fatherly compassion are our support in confessing our sins. If you do something wrong, for example, in your work, if you trust that your boss will, will forgive you, then you will be encouraged to go and admit it. In the same way, because we know God is merciful and compassionate, this is our support in confessing and confessing our sins. David added another uh, important virtue beside humility. The other virtue or humbleness is the fear of God. That's why in verse 12, he asked the question, who is the man that fears the Lord? Him, this man, shall he, God, teach in the way he chooses. So after he spoke about how humbleness 
actually is access to God's grace and compassion. Now he is saying there is another, the reverent fear of God, another virtue we need to have. And the two concepts, humility and fear of God, are closely connected. This humble, reverent person will expect the gift of guidance from God. God will guide him and instruct him. By spirit of meekness, we enjoy the mercies of God and we experience his forgiveness and compassionate fatherhood. And by the fear of God, our will will be conformed to his will and the way we choose would be his way. So, meekness will actually bring upon us the grace of God, his compassion and his forgiveness. Fear of God make our will actually conform to his will and the way we choose every day will be his way. And if we choose wisely, God will give us grace to walk wisely. Then David, he said, there are more blessings to the fearer of God. Verse 13, he himself shall dwell in prosperity and his descendants shall inherit the earth. Maybe David, in verse 13, he meant earthly, material blessing that often come to the humble and reverent. Actually, many verses address the gracious attitude of God toward those who love him. For example, verse, uh, Psalm 103, verse 11. As heaven are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. So if I fear him, I will receive his love and, and compassion. Also in Luke chapter 1, verse 50, his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Also, we will be accepted before God in Acts chapter 10, verse 35. But in every nation, whoever fears God and works righteousness is accepted by him. So, there are many blessings. Those who fear God also have nothing else to fear. They, they, they don't fear anything beside God. The soul, our souls, the soul that is sanctified by the grace of God and comforted by the peace of God dwell in prosperity and content. So not necessarily the earthly prosperity, but the contentment. Whatever I have, I'll be content. As St. Paul said, I, I trained myself to be content. I learned how to be hungry and how to be full. This content, uh, internal prosperity. So even when the body is sick and lies in pain, but the soul dwell in prosperity in God. Some scholars said this prosperity about the inheritance of heaven. 
David said, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. God actually remembered Isaac for the sake of Abraham and remembered Jacob for the sake of Isaac. So the descendant of the fear of God, of the fearers of God, those who fear God, will be blessed. As God blessed Isaac because of Abraham and blessed uh, Jacob because of Isaac. But inherit the earth means what? Some scholars said the earth is your body, physical body. So as if David say, a person who fears God, he will have control over his body. The desires of the flesh do not lead him, but the Spirit of God leads his spirit and his spirit in control and rule over uh, the body. So the body is under control of the spirit. Also, other scholars said, inherit the earth. Earth here is a symbol of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he became man and he lived on earth. So inherit the earth means we'll be able to eat his body and drink his blood in communion. St. Augustine, as I told you, want to apply everything in Psalms for God. So he applied this verse to God. He said, His blessed soul, the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ, now not troubled anymore, as he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, my soul troubles. Now he is not exceedingly sorrowful. Now he is dwelling in everlasting ease in the kingdom which he established on the day of crucifixion. And his seed or his offspring are us because we are the children of God. Shall inherit the earth mean they are spread all over the world or inherit the earth as we read in the book of Revelation, I saw new heaven and new earth, so we'll inherit this new earth. Verse 14, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. So after David spoke about material blessing that may come upon those who fear God and those who are humble, then spoke David about the greatest blessing that one may receive. What is the greatest blessing? The secret of the Lord. Greater understanding of his covenant. Actually, those who fear God, there will be many mysterious spiritual blessings waiting for them. As we read in Matthew 13, verse 11, he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Given to you, not to anybody else. St. Gregory says, in the way of God we begin in fear, but we end in fortitude. What is his secret? 
His secret is his word, his counsel. As we read in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 32, his secret counsel is with the upright. Also, his secret can be a reference to the sacrament uh, of communion, the Eucharist. So this mystery is given to those who fear him. His covenant, God will teach them true knowledge of his word. When they read the scripture, God will enlighten their understanding and reveal to them deep mysteries in the scripture. Because it is said to be hid from many of them to whom it was revealed. Yeah, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he said about the Jews, until now when they read the scripture, the veil is on their mind. So they don't understand the mysteries of God. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Verse 15, my eyes are ever, ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Ever means David is always, always looking to God, waiting for him, expecting and anticipating his deliverances. Apparently, David, when he composed this psalm, he was in danger or difficulty. And he is in need of divine help. That's why his eyes looking for God. St. John Chrysostom said, Birds, when they cleave the air at high, are not easily taken by a snare. Thus you, if you will fix your eyes on things that are above, will not be easily taken with any snares. Birds have wings given to them to this end. When they see snares, they fly, and they may avoid the snares. And we have reason, God give us a reason, to use them as wings to fly away from any snare. He who keeps his eyes constantly directed toward God, meaning he is continuously in a praying mood. And definitely God will answer. He said, God will answer those who are crying to him day and night. And because of the power of prayer, one may avoid the temptations of the devil. St. Augustine says, nor would I fear the dangers of the earth, while I look not upon the earth, for he upon whom I look will pluck my feet out of the snare. So if you look at God, God will pluck your feet out of the snare, out of the net. Out of net or snare means all kinds of temptation which Satan spreads in the world. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. I am in a constant prayer. Because God shall pluck my feet out of the net, out of the temptations of Satan. Verse 16. Now he is repeating his plea to God. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me. For I am desolate 
and afflicted. We see David did not hesitate to repeat his request to God, persistence in prayer. In verse 15, he spoke about how he turned his attention toward the Lord, his eyes looking to God. Here in verse 16, he turned his attention toward his needy servant. I am desolate and in affliction. Perhaps David thought, thought, perhaps David thought that he was not attentive to him, that God is not attentive to me. And he prays that God would turn and behold him, that God would see him in his trouble. That's why he said, turn yourself to me, have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The psalmist seemed to have felt that if God would look upon him, he would have mercy on me. Just look upon me. You will see how desolate, how afflicted I am. Then actually, if you turn to me, your love will compel you to have mercy on me. Your love, O oh God, will compel you to have mercy upon me. When you see my condition, desolate, I am alone, only one. But desolate doesn't mean that David is alone literally, because he had people with him. But this means I am wholly dependent on you. I, as if I don't have anyone except you. I don't trust anything else. I don't trust men. I don't trust riches. I trust only you. I am dependent on you. And I am afflicted. I am lonely and bowed down. The Lord Jesus Christ on earth was in a similar condition. He said, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. This is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 17, he said, The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. The troubles enlarged, became great. The affliction of whatever kind it may have been was regarded by David as a punishment sent on him for his sins. So David assumed that this troubles because of his sins. That's why he told him, bring me out of my distress. Uh, David was deeply conscious and deeply repentant of his sins. That's why in verse 18 he said, Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. I know this affliction and pain because of my sins. So look at my affliction and pain and forgive all my sins. Look on my affliction. This is a repetition of earnest pleading, as if God is still turning away from him. He is asking him, turn, look to me. Forgive all my sins. That is the cry of a soul that is ill of sin more than of pain. The soul that is ill of sin more than of pain. When we are afflicted, we naturally ask whether this affliction is because of our sins or not. Sometimes we feel guilty 
That's why David made a connection between his afflictions and pain and his sins. Then in verse 19, he said, Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. So David said, My enemies who persecuted me are many and malicious and very vicious. It was with cruel hatred that they hated me. This happens also with Jesus Christ, his enemies and his persecutors hated him badly, also the persecutors of the church. So David is asking God, look at them. And then when you see how hated me, verse 20, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed for I put my trust in you. He repeated again. Keep my soul. He beseeched for protection. In, in, in the first place, protect me from my own sins and deliver me from my enemies. As we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So protect me from sin and deliver me from the evil one. And again, he is emphasizing, for I put my trust in you. I have taken refuge in you. Therefore, you cannot forsake me. You cannot let me be destroyed. You are my only refuge. And here, we need to learn a lesson that the present difficulty that David is enduring did not prevent him from trusting in God and serving God. Sometimes when we are in difficulty, we don't trust God. Uh, so, David said, I put my trust in you. Verse 21, let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on you. So David is praying that integrity may preserve him. What did he mean by let integrity and uprightness preserve me? Maybe he, he meant his own integrity and his own uprightness as, uh, as if God uh, God when he sees me faithful and upright in the way I am conducting my life in the way I'm governing my kingdom uh, and even with my enemies like Epsilon who rebelled against me. So when you see my integrity and my uprightness, then God will preserve me. But maybe David is not speaking, and as a humble person, not speaking about his integrity or his uprightness. May he is saying, if you grant me integrity and uprightness to continue to be integral and upright, then this actually will preserve me from being led by the corruption of my heart or being led by the temptation of Satan. So he's saying, God help me to continue in integrity and uprightness and this will preserve me. 
So as if David is praying for a perfect heart and upright life. A third meaning, maybe he is speaking about the integrity and uprightness of God. Your integrity and your uprightness, your goodness and your grace to us, your faithfulness to your promises will preserve me. As if he is saying, your integrity, God, and your uprightness are practical safeguards to us. Uh, Even the ungodly world admit that honesty is the best policy. Honesty is the best policy. Uh, For I wait for you, let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you, I wait for you, repeated several times. The last verse, redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all troubles. So this concluding prayer for the nation. So David as a king, he's not praying for himself, but he's praying for the whole nation. He prays earnestly to God for relief and help for Israel. And Israel represents the church. So David is praying for the Holy Church. So although David's troubles were enlarged, and he prayed that God may deliver him, but in the midst of all of this, he did not forget the distress of the church of God, and he prayed for his people. So this see show us how he was not selfish at all. In the midst of his trouble that enlarged, he's praying for Israel. So it is significant that David could spare a prayer for the trouble of others when he was in such difficulty. Because we cannot enjoy any comfort in our own safety while the rest of our brothers and sisters are in distress and danger. Also this Uh, verse 22 can be a prophecy of sending the Messiah in the due time to redeem Israel from their iniquities. It also may refer to the joy and comfort in the future, in heaven, in heaven only. Israel, the people of God, will perfectly be redeemed from all their troubles. St. Augustine says, Redeem your people, O God, whom you have prepared to see you out of their troubles, not those only which bears without, but those which uh, they bear within. So St. Augustine says, Redeem your people, O Lord, those who look up, up to you of all their troubles, not only the external troubles, but the internal troubles as well. This concludes Psalm 25 from the book of Psalms. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.